This is Minnesota Liberty, brought to you by the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, bringing you peace, prosperity, and freedom from the land of 10,000 lakes. Welcome to Minnesota Liberty, Episode 1. I'm Rebecca Whiting. And I'm James Gentleman. Uh, so welcome to the inaugural episode. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the struggles smaller political parties like ours have in getting their names on the ballots. In Minnesota, ballot access requires collection of hundreds or even thousands of signatures just to get candidates' name in front of voters. And the DFL and GOP are joining forces to make that even harder. Here to talk about that, it is our panel of Chip Tangen and Jeremy Peichel. But first, don't forget that the LPMN convention is just around the corner. Join us April 14th through 16th to hear from exciting guest speakers like Angela McArdle, Maj Ture, and Cassandra Fryman. To make your mark on the party, visit lpmn.org for more information. With that, welcome panelists. So, um, hi, Chip. Hi, Jeremy. How's it going? Hi. So we just would like to know a little bit about you guys and your particular interest in ballot access. Chip, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, So I've petitioned on at least two uh, general election cycles. In 2018, I worked on Josh Welter's campaign. He was our candidate for governor. And um, so that's where I really uh, learned what it's like to petition. A candidate for governor needs 2,000 signatures. Uh, And so Josh and I uh, knocked on a lot of doors. We also uh, teamed up that year on a couple of occasions with a fellow in Apple Valley, which is near where we both live, um, who is running for the state legislature. And so we were petitioning for ourselves and for him too. Uh, His name was, is, is Matt Swenson. Uh, That year, we also did some petitioning for our, yeah, we did. We petitioned for our our auditor race that year, uh, Chris Dock. And Chris did did well that year. We got 1.3%, I think, and Chris got... Bear with me a second. Chris got 2.09%. And again, our threshold that we need is is 5%. Uh, Jump ahead four years. And uh, so we're into the 2022 convention, um, our election season. And um, I did end up running as a candidate for Secretary of State and did a lot of petitioning that year. And I know one concern we have is that the petitioning cycle is only two weeks. I'm glad it's only two weeks. It was exhausting. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, Well, and thank you for all of the effort that you put out um, over the years for that. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well? Sure. I'm Jeremy Peichel. I was the candidate for Senate District 66 in Minnesota last election cycle. Uh, I was one of the only candidates to make it on the ballot for the Libertarian Party of Minnesota and was grateful to volunteers like Chip uh, and like you, James, for helping out walking the streets, um, we got signatures to get on the ballot. It required 500 uh, to actually just have our name printed on there. Uh, and in the end, we ended up securing three and a half percent 
of the voting population in the district, which is pretty impressive given the strength of the Democratic Party uh, in the area I live. And so one of the key issues that I campaigned on during that period was actually ballot access and inclusion. Uh, the system right now is set up, as Chip was mentioning, to very strongly bias the options at the polling place to just those two major parties primarily. And so by limiting our choices on the ballot, they're essentially trading control between each other uh, rather than providing true choice to the citizens when they vote. So the goal for me, at least when I was running, was to educate people about these limitations on their choices and offer them an opportunity to pick freedom, pick liberty, and really expand their ability and their voice when it comes to expressing their interests and in policies and professionals who represent them at the Capitol. Um, so that was my success. I've been a libertarian for a while and have done campaigning uh, for all manner of parties and canvassed for Republicans, Democrats, and libertarians. And it's been a lot of fun to try it out as the candidate himself this time. Cool. Well, thanks a lot for that. Um, Rebecca, did you want to, did you want to start with our line of questioning for these guys? Yeah. So what, I mean, we're talking about it right now, ballot access, kind of because, you know, in our circle, it's important, but maybe not everybody understands why. So what is currently going on with ballot access and why is it important? I can, I can take that. I think um, the current law requires that Minnesotans, if they want to get onto the ballot, if they are a, not a major party to collect five, uh, to, to get on the ballot and uh, you have to petition. So a petition looks like this. And notice this is legal sized paper, which is very difficult to find. You're probably not gonna find it at your local target. <laughs> um, so for a state house race, it's 500 signatures. For a congressional race, it's a thousand. For a statewide race, it's 2000. And uh, those are bare minimum numbers because you will have many people who fill it out wrong or write illegibly. Uh, so you have to pad it with a lot more numbers. What we're concerned about in the legislature right now is, um, oh, the objective of getting on the ballot is to get have a statewide candidate win 5% of the vote. 5%. Uh, and I actually have some statistics about how parties in Minnesota have done about that over the over the years. Um, it, it's achievable at 5%. 10%, it's freakish circumstances like a Jesse Ventura or a Ross Perot. Then you can get it. Other than that, it's, it's not going to happen. And in the legislature right now, there are proposals, uh, identical proposals in the House and Senate that would raise the, the qualifying threshold to 10%. That that is just too high. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest piece I see from the way that Minnesota structures it versus other states is that we separate three different levels of political organization in our state. So rather than having a major party and minor party, we have major party, minor party, and then political interest group essentially. And so the states discriminates against each group, depending on how small they are. So in our case, as the Libertarian Party of Minnesota, along with several others, we qualify as a minor party. 
And that gives us some advantages over just a political organization in that we have a, a better chance of being successful and have recognition for things like public subsidy if we wanted to use that on, in elections. Uh, but we're still, as Chip was saying, restricted to our access on the ballot, uh, requiring petitions every single time. Now, in terms of races, for my race, like I said, I got three and a half percent. So five percent is definitely achievable for a third party candidate, even in Democratic strongholds. Uh, I, I really think that the the state, <clears throat> the state House and Senate are at this point seeing groups like the Legal Marijuana Now Party and the other one whose name I can't remember <laughs> that's very similar to Legal Marijuana Now, but uh, <laughs> essentially they they saw what happened in races where they were competitive, such as Congressional District 2, I believe it was, um, the South Metro in Minnesota. Uh, they saw that as vote stealing. They believe they own the votes of their, their registered party members, and by sending more choices onto the ballot, those parties were taking what they thought was theirs. So to protect what they believe is their property, the votes of their registered members, they're trying to restrict the access to the ballot even further and ensure that no one can threaten their cartel organization of political power balance between Democrats and Republicans. And so part of my, our concern with this issue is that because they're the parties in power right now, they have all the authority. They're ignoring the will of the people represented through these minor parties and political organizations and saying, we really don't want to face competition. So we're going to make sure that we outlaw competition at the, the legislative level. And um, if we put it into law and just, it's a simple change, 5% becomes 10%, not a big deal, right? Well, it's enough to push people off the ballot and ensure that they have a tight hold on power for many years to come. What do you think? So that's the Jeremy. You just very eloquently told us the real reason that they're that they're doing this. What are their stated reasons? Because what you just said doesn't fly with voters. Yeah. So the the stated reason, at least from what I've seen of communications from the majority leader to someone in my district, uh, they want to they they think that the liber, the Libertarian Party not a not an issue but the legal marijuana now party and their similarly named compatriots are poorly vetting political candidates they're saying and so in doing so they believe that there's a waste of public resources on the publication of a name potential allocation of public funds to elections for individuals who are maybe not truly representative of the party that they're saying they're from mm -hmm. And this follows with the argument that they believe those votes are owned by them. Uh, they see the that voter confusion could result from an individual who's uh, not authentically representing themselves and genuinely trying to become elected under the platform of the party they organized uh, their their campaign under. And so they see the ability to gain access to major party status as a true threat because without the sort of infrastructure and strength across the state that the Democrat and Republican parties have, these other minor parties that manage to breach that threshold and become major can really disrupt their control over the information networks uh, that voters have to, to understand who they should be voting for. Chip, the DFL and the GOP are both kind of in collusion on this. The, I know that the, the, 
the vast majority of the of the of the authors of the bill are Democrats, if not all of them. Um, but we did recently see a letter from the chairman of the GOP um, in favor of it. Do you think that one party is better than the other, or are they all pretty much just uh, just the same? I would say the Democratic Party is driving the train on this one, but the Republicans are going along with it. Uh, part of it, I think, is just on the length of the letters. The letter from uh, from Ken Martin with the DFL chair is is very detailed. He goes, he articulates thorough arguments. The letter from uh, David Hahn just has some bullet points. So I, I sense that it was the DFL that was driving this, but I, you know, you can't excuse the Republicans for for going along with it. Um, one, many things bothered me about what they've said in this, but they they would say, but it's just a nominal requirement to get petitions, nominal number that you need to achieve. You can do it. So I did some research in our party, the Libertarian Party, going back to the uh, to 2000. So we've had 12 elections since the year 2000. And we've had in recent years people like Jeremy and TJ running this year. I thought we'd have a, a fairly sizable number of candidates that qualified over those 12 election cycles. There's 201 seats in the legislature, lots of opportunities, plus all the statewide. In the legislature, there were only 12 candidates over that 12-year period that qualified to get on the ballot. It's just friction. It's hard to get on the ballot. It's an effort that the other guys don't have to do. It's particularly, and and Rebecca, you can speak to this, uh, difficult for those who live in rural communities. I live in a neighborhood with, you know, I think there's 240 houses in in my neighborhood. I can get a lot of ballots signed, a lot of petitions signed just there. But Rebecca, you know, tell me how you're, how close are your nearest neighbors? I have, um, so in half a mile in either direction, there's four families. Yeah. And with only two weeks to collect signatures, and if it's 500, uh, one person can't do it. One person, I think, technically could do it in a suburban area could, but it would be asking that person to do a lot. You need an army. And, uh, but in a rural area, uh, I, we had a candidate, Jake Dahl, who was up in the Alexandria area, as I recall, and he was highly motivated to do this. Thought it was a good opportunity given the, the setup of the other candidates who were expected to run. He just ran out of time. Well, and Bull Johnson, who is you know no longer a Libertarian Party member, but is still a friend of the party, um, he, I mean, he spent two years building a street team, building up a nest egg, um, and I mean, I know that I went out and volunteered for him, and t- like so many people drove from all over the state, and he still didn't get the the Very requisite good. number of signatures in the sort of giant, geographically giant, but very sparsely populated district that he was running in. Um, how do we how do we surmount that obstacle? I think for for Bull in particular, he had a threshold of fifteen hundred, and the issue really comes down to the easy street path that the Democrats and Republicans have set up for themselves. Um, in that they don't feel the pain of petitioning, they don't know that it's challenging. They're so far removed from actual legwork 
to get on the ballot, that they see these things as minuscule. Uh, and so this discriminatory system they've set up is exactly that, to ensure that they retain power. I think the only way to really fix that is to either require them to petition to get on the ballot uh, or eliminate petition requirements altogether. Uh, and it's just, I don't see how in a rural district, particularly as bull-faced, you could have anybody be successful in getting 1,500 signatures in two weeks. The mileage you would have to drive it just to get a no potentially at a door you show up to. You know, some people just they don't want to give the government their information for some reason. Uh, you know, I, I can't understand why they wouldn't trust the government, but maybe others can shine a light on that for me. Well, and even in a neighborhood such as mine, an area such as mine, I can knock on a lot of doors. They're not all going to be open. I'll be spending a lot of time where I just, uh, I'm not going to get an answer. Uh, a lot of people have ring doorbells. They see somebody holding a clipboard. They're not going to answer the door. Um, there are, uh, one thing I faced this year was COVID. Two years ago, they granted us the ability to collect signatures digitally. It helped us. They thought COVID's over. This time, I knocked on a lot of houses where people through the glass door very kindly said, I'm sorry, we've got COVID. I had one uh, person who felt she had she had COVID or there was somebody in her house had COVID. She said, I'm going to go wash my hands. I'm going to get my own pen. Hand me your clipboard. And, you know, so she went through that extraordinary effort to do it. That's but, so nice. Yeah. <laughs> and um, when I did, and this was kind of a gut punch, when I... Um, presented my signatures. I knew I was short, but I wanted to present them anyway because I didn't want to keep them and we're not supposed to keep them. Um, half the staff at the Secretary of State's office was wearing a mask and they had the plexiglass up, barrier up still. And I asked them, why are you wearing a mask? And, you know, because they were concerned. Yeah, that's and that's definitely more prevalent here in the cities and in the sort of nearer su suburbs in the cities. I, I would imagine that Bull didn't encounter a ton of people wearing masks, but, no. <laughs> but, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, and that's, you know, that's not, I guess that's not, um, that's not hopefully going to be too much of an issue next year when we're collecting signatures, hopefully for a presidential candidate and a Senate candidate. Um, uh, I think one of the one of the issues that we ran into last year was that our our volunteer sort of, sort of our stable of volunteers had dwindled a bit and we were pretty inexperienced. Given that now we have this experience, what can we what what wisdom have we learned? Um, and Chip, uh, especially you know you've been doing this for so long, what did we do wrong and what could we have done better in order to achieve that? 2000 signatures or whatever it is that each candidate needs. Yeah. The, the way to end this so that we don't have to petition ever again is to ourselves win majority party status. We've tried legislative approach. We see now what they're doing to us instead of we're on, we're on defense. Well, we used to be on offense. So I don't hold a lot of, I mean, we should try. We just don't hold a lot of uh, comfort that, that that will succeed. We've tried litigation. We thought we had an, and we can talk about that later, uh, but but we lost that case. So I, that's a challenge. But the 5% is something we can do. 
other parties have done it. They've done it repeatedly. So today I was looking at um, the races going back to 1992. All of the races, all the statewide races. There were 18 times that there was a race that qualified a party for majority party status. Some of, you know, there were glory years for the reform party, you know, so they would overqualify. Um, but we haven't yet achieved that. We need to pull together to do that once. Then we can run candidates everywhere. Jake Dahl wouldn't have to petition. Rebecca Whiting up in Bemidji wouldn't have to petition. She'd have to get her party's nomination. But all these candidates could run. Um, one thing we have to worry about is losing minor party status. And you have to hold on to your status for two elections in a row. Uh, well, we're on notice. We have to get 1% for this next election. So I think that will double our efforts in the party to do this. Um, we have two opportunities. It can be the presidential race or it can be um, the, the Senate race. So it's two races instead of four. Logistically, it's easier if you narrowed the numbers of races that you attempt to do. Um, but just to be realistic, it's the Joe Jorgensen race in 2018. Um, she had, or in 20, 2020, yep. she had um, 1.07%. You know, so we barely got over. Because of that, we have our, our, our status. Um, so we, uh, we need to get that done. Senate races are, uh, oh, I, I should go back though. We did have the Gary Johnson race uh, back in 2016. He got 3.84%. That's an, that's in a distance where we can we can do it, I think. Yeah. So if this what if we don't get minor party status, let's just say worst case scenario that doesn't happen, then what? We can just petition to get ourselves in the ballot again. We can do it. We've we've recovered before, and I think there was a year where we we came back with gusto and did a full slate of candidates. So uh, it's more, it, I know there's some financial aspects involved, but I think there's the, the prestige. We're the Libertarian Party. We're not a fly-by-night organization. We should be a party. Um, when you go to the Secretary of State's website, look up Minnesota political parties, you'll see the Libertarian Party. We don't want to lose that. What does what does major and minor party status mean in Minnesota, practically? Well, to me, I, it's it's the ballot access. That is just such a tremendous difference. Um, we are, we are a second class when it comes to that. We again, there are two hundred and one seats in the Minnesota legislature. We fielded two candidates this past election because it's very hard to petition successfully. 
if we achieve major party status, we could um, flood the flood the field, run a sea of candidates. So another interesting uh, factoid from last year's election, 201 races, guess how many seats were run without a competitor from the other legacy party? 24. It's 12% of the legislative races had no competitor, including sponsors of the bills that we're concerned about. They, so yeah. I, I submit that they are out of touch. And perhaps they don't even know what competition looks like. Right. <laughs> They're not being opposed. They think that it's a single party control district, right? So, but because there, there are perspectives yet unrepresented because of this relegation, uh, that perhaps that's why it appears to be non-competitive. Yeah, Rebecca, you have uh, you're kind of famous for saying that the GOP has lied down on the job so much in Minnesota that they don't even deserve to exist anymore. Can you expand on that just a little bit? Well, in northern Minnesota, so the Libertarian Party pretty much is the the majority of it comes out of the cities in southern Minnesota. And in northern Minnesota, there's just not a lot of presence up here. There wasn't until we got here and started something. And so people up here, I mean, you don't move to rural northern Minnesota where it can be 40 below during the wintertime and, you know, you're snowed in, you're 20 miles from town, you don't have a lot of resources around you. So you don't live in those kind of conditions if you don't have some sort of like independent, liberty minded, like that's just part of who you are. And there's a lot of people up here that are... I would say they're they're pretty conservatively minded people. They vote GOP simply out by default because they are just not Democrats. But ideologically, they would be more in line with the Libertarian Party and with well with any party that is more liberty minded because everybody agrees overall that the GOP just isn't they don't speak for them. They're out of touch. They're kind of the majority of the party is a little bit on the older side. And so there's not like this new influx of youth coming in for the GOP like that you would see in the DFL. Um, But just because there are no other options, you know, who do people vote for? And simply by that default that um, that's why. But, and, but people vote for the GOP in this area is very red. You know, as Governor Walt said, uh, that red area up there is nothing but rocks and cows. So there's that, you know, kind of city arrogance that just, you know, we're just going to dismiss everybody in northern Minnesota or in the outstates because even western Minnesota isn't, you know, it's, it's pretty rural out there also. Um, and, you know, people are tired of letting city politics speak for them throughout the state and just being completely dismissed. And the GOP has really dropped the ball in that area where that they just, they don't, they didn't even mount a true defense. I mean, the last election cycle with Waltz versus um, Dr. Jensen and they lost bad. Like that wasn't even a close race coming out of the COVID authoritarian statist years and Walt smoked Dr. Jensen. 
So, you know, you, you view that even in those circumstances, the GOP just did that poorly. People don't know who to turn to, but they, the GOP has proven over and over again that they just they aren't capable of handling the competition with the DFL. The DFL just they're they're winning the culture race in the state. Period. Jeremy, as a candidate, um, you spent a ton of time collecting signatures. Uh, I know I was out there for several hours with you, and you kept going after I left, um, and that was just on one day. How much time, how did you decide how to break your time down between petitioning and like actual political campaigning? Or did you not even have time to campaign? Yeah, initially the focus is just on getting on the ballot because my district was so blue. I I basically set a goal of getting on the ballot as our first step because a write-in campaign is not a sustainable position for somebody who has no name recognition, even on an open seat election like what I had with the redistricting, moving my former senator to the district to the north of me. And so it was all rookies, basically, uh, running for office. And even in that situation, I wouldn't have done it with a write-in campaign. So I had to get on the ballot in order to even make that next step toward campaigning. So all of my time was dedicated to petitioning. And to that end, I, I think, you know, there there are a couple of I, uh, questions that have come up through the discussion that I, I think I want to address before I continue on that thought. Um, so first, with the major party status, what the advantage is, um, Chip mentioned that that ballot access threshold, what that really comes down to is the mechanism for choosing candidates, right? So in the law, the state allows major parties to hold primaries, right? So they can choose their candidate by ballot at a polling place at a specified time, that primary process is equivalent or superior to the petitioning process. The petition is, is considered the alternate method. So the parties could do that if they wanted to, but they don't because it's easier just to get voters to show up and vote. They restrict access to primaries and the ballot box for primaries to just those major parties. So as a minor party, our only option on the table left is to do access by petition. And so that's sort of the, the major distinction and benefits there between major and minor and why this little change is so impactful. Uh, on the, the subject of gathering signatures, one of the advantages I had was actually sending legal paper printed petitions to various members of my community and my, my signature gathering army so that I didn't have to be with them when they went out and gathered signatures. They could go on their own time in a neighborhood section that we designated together for them. And they were responsible for that. They were sort of like block captains going up and down different streets, gathering signatures from their own neighbors. And so I think in terms of the strategy for success in gathering the requisite number of eligible voters who support this candidate, it's making sure that people get the paper in hand and feel like they have ownership of a territory and then are able to go out and execute in that space. So hopefully we'll have a strategy similar to that or along those same lines with uh, the, the teams that'll come forward for the next election cycle. Uh, but when it came to campaigning, after I gained access to the ballot, a lot of it was just going around and talking to people and listening to what they had to say. I had you know, a simple postcard that gave them some basic information about who I was and what I believe in, uh, which was essentially the same stuff as the Libertarian Party has. And the biggest 
challenge that I faced was people not even knowing what a libertarian was or that there was such a thing as a choice that wasn't Democrat or Republican. Some of them would close the door as soon as they heard that I wasn't one of those. Others would actually invite to talk to me once I said I wasn't a Democrat or Republican. So, you know, your mileage may vary when you talk to people about campaigning and, and depending on where you are, whether it's suburb, city or rural, they're going to have a different response to you. But in the end, it's really just people communicating with another person, learning about who they are and what they want to do. And we all share the same problems, just different perspectives on how to solve them. And so finding that common ground was my goal every time I went out. And that usually took longer conversations, but I tried to keep it brief and hand them the postcard if something went a little long for me. Uh, but the key is just to let them know that you're a person and they can vote for you if they want to, but they don't have to. They just You're just there to provide them information and get them educated. One thing I picked up during this uh, petitioning cycle, just because I did so much of it this time, uh, being a candidate, I felt felt morally obligated to do that, um, was I got a sense that Democrats and Republicans, not the party le leaders, but just Democrats and Republicans don't want us on the ballot. They're concerned, oh, it might hurt my team. Mm -hmm. They didn't tell me it directly all the time. Sometimes they did. Uh, but a test was when I would have uh, up to four ballot petitions for our four statewide offices. And they'd sign for me. And as they're just finishing up, I'd say, you know, I've got another friend running for, for governor. He's got the same challenge. He, he lives, you know, he's an Egan. He's really close to us. He's, he's our neighbor, too. Um, and they'd say, yeah, but he's not here and you are. And, you know, so I could see they just didn't want to spend that extra two minutes to fill out a second petition. Sometimes I get them to fill out that one. And then I go for the third office and the fourth office. And it ate up a lot of time doing that. Um, but you definitely got a read that they were signing a petition for me because I asked. It's hard to say no to the person who's asking to be on the ballot. But for the other candidates, there was uh, hesitance. I don't know if you've found that, Jeremy, at all. Or Yeah, most of my reflection with people was about, I just want to get access to the ballot. Yeah. So some of them, the political differences didn't matter, especially at that stage. But when it came to getting other signatures, they were definitely hesitant. And mostly yeah. it was a time thing, too. They'd be, you know, I'm yeah. gardening or I want to get on with my life. Uh, but it, with that two-week window, you're so pressured to get as many signatures for every person that actually answers the door instead of yells at you through their, their Nest camera. Uh, you want to make sure that you're getting your money's worth out of that answer. Um, so, yeah, I, I tried to push additional signatures. I usually only carried one uh, statewide candidate with me each time I went, and I changed which one that yeah. was. But I, I was generally successful when they were not obviously looking to move on with their day in getting a second signature uh, just because they were grateful to have people interested. They said, uh, you know, the, the idea of getting more choices on the ballot was attractive yeah. to most people. So I'm guessing your success rate in just approaching somebody for a petition was very high because you were asking for yourself. Generally it was, I, I would say yeah. I was over 60, 70%, yeah. something like that. Um, the hardest part was just getting the door answered, right? That was less than half of the doors I knocked were answered. And again, that's the time issue. 
So when you guys did petitioning, did you experience people that just were acting overly excited about there even being a possibility? Because we, I did petitioning for Bull Johnson and for the governor race, and I was at a, a biker rally. And it was just, you know, you, you say, this is what we're doing. This is what this petition means. And there were people that were just, you know, like almost uh, show, you know, very excited. There was a lot of enthusiasm behind the possibility and the options because everybody had an opinion. I found a few of those, but what really heartened me and, you know, allowed me to drive on some, some more mileage, so to speak, was immigrant families. They were so excited to participate in our electoral system. And this was it coming to their door. And, you know, um, and by the way, they were naturalized citizens. But you could just see the enthusiasm that they had. It was inspiring to me. It really was. It was countered by people who were very pessimistic. Some people are so dispirited with the political situation the idea that we're trying to bring an option, they're, not, they're just so dispirited, they didn't want to do anything. And the, those two balanced each other out. Or they felt like it was their job to try to dissuade you from continuing further. <laughs> you know, oh. I definitely felt that way with a few people. So the worst, <laughs> and this is one of the things, when you knock on enough doors, you just get all different types, was libertarians. There were so some libertarians that are so cool you know, that they're not going to, because they're concerned about being exposed. And, it, you know, because this is public information, their neighbor's going to see it. Uh, but, and, you know, the government's going to see it. It's going to be on a record for a year. I think that's what the requirement is. So they had concerns about that. Uh, but the the killer ones were, yeah, but, you know, you guys, you never, we're, we're never going to win. What, why bother? And it was, those are like, yeah, especially when it came from those who were so libertarian, they're non-voters because they see yeah. that as an endorsement of the system. And I, I get where they're coming from in that, terms of but... philosophy. But, uh, you know, if you're living in the society, I feel mm -hmm. like you have an obligation to try to bend it toward the the freedom of the future. Right. Like it's it's going to get there eventually. Ideally, we can help move it along a little faster. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you, Chip, about the, the heartening from immigrant families. I had some of the best conversations with new voters, not mm -hmm. not teenagers, adult new voters. Yeah. Uh, so the, I really enjoyed that. And that's actually what allowed me to get the fuel to do the next step of campaigning mm -hmm. was some of those conversations I had. I made sure I came back to those neighborhoods, back to those houses where people were inspiring me yeah. with their gratitude, just being grateful that somebody's willing to step out there mm -hmm. and actually challenge this system that seems built for us to fail. And despite that, we're out there knocking on doors in the rain, getting signatures, letting people know that they have a choice. And it's up to us as the people to secure that choice. And they were doing their part in signing the petition, and they were grateful to see me come back and let them know that I was successful. And I hope they were among my three and a half percent. What is a what does it look like from walking up to someone's door, and so the time between that and securing the signature? How do you how do you do you ring the doorbell? Do you knock? Um, if someone's out working in the yard, do you bug them? Um, I have all kinds of questions like that because when I was petitioning, I really, I was scared to go to people's houses 
And I thought that if I just go where the people are, like the Minneapolis Farmer's Market, Lake Nokomis on a pretty day, that kind of thing, we would get all the signatures we possibly could need. Um, and that was a that was kind of a relic to my time at Pride when I collected, I think, like 30, 30 signatures for Gary Johnson in like 10 minutes. It was crazy mm-hmm. how many people were willing to, to sign for Gary Johnson. Um, but come to find out, uh, and this, again, owes to the, to the inexperience that we had last year, um, apparently knocking on doors is really kind of the way to do it. Um, what tips do you have for someone like me who might be a little bit shy to knock on somebody's door? Chip, you want to get started as the yeah. volunteer? You know, you just do it. And it and it gets easier. Um, you just I, I'm an introvert, so this is painful for me to do. Uh, but you just force yourself through it, and it becomes so. With experience, those concerns are going to go away. Um, one thing I picked up on was the no soliciting signs. There's a lot of them, at least in the verbs, at. First, I didn't like, I really didn't notice them. And I knocked on the door and it was like, oops, afterwards. And later I just decided anytime I'm going to see a no soliciting sign, even though this is different, I'm not going to waste my time there. So if I saw that, I moved on. But if I saw saw someone out gardening, yeah, I talked to them right there. Just have a conversation. It's, It's conversational. We're not petitioning. We're not campaigning. We're just trying to provide voters more choices on the ballot. It's that simple. You may get into a conversation about what party you're with, um, but you don't have to. Especially at the signature stage, that's not even necessary. That's usually something they'll they'll talk about while they're signing is they'll they'll read if they read. Not everyone does. If they read, they'll see the party name and they'll be like, oh, what, what's this? You know, explain to me what a libertarian party is and why that's chosen. So my experience, obviously, in this most recent election was as the candidate. My experience was very different from that of volunteers. But in the end, it was still going door to door. And I, my biggest concern with people that were outside was actually startling them because a lot of people are out working in the garden with their headphones on or whatever in the, in the springtime when we were out there, this was, you know, late May, mid, mid to late May uh, in Minnesota, which is, you know, sort of peak, get your garden ready time. Mm -hmm. And so there were a lot of people outside getting their, their plants ready for summer. And uh, I really didn't want to startle them when I came up on them because I'm walking the streets, right? So trying to get people's attention ahead of time when you're a little farther away can be helpful if they're they're very obviously outside and doing something. Um, make an eye contact. You know, they're, one of the things I noticed was some people would hurry into their garage and close the garage door before they even got out of the car because they didn't want to risk running into somebody. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that'd be a house I skipped. But uh, a lot of it was just going up and, and greeting people and saying hi. But particularly for me, because I was their neighbor running for office, I was able to just sort of connect with them at that level. Uh, but as a, if you're a volunteer, just representing a friend. You know, I'm trying to get more choices on the ballot. So signature gathering it's not that challenging. And like Chip said, once you get the first one under your belt, it gets a lot easier after that. Um, and, and big events, great. Uh, if you know that there's going to be a lot of people that are friendly to the cause there and you're doing a statewide ballot. What I found in going to dog parks and things as a local can- race candidate, there were a lot of people that visit the Lauderdale Dog Park that do not live in my district. 
which was surprising to me because it's a very small pocket dog park, but they apparently worked nearby and would walk their dog at the local park and then go back to where they lived in Apple Valley or wherever. Uh, so you're, you're better off at those events and congregation places to take statewide candidate petitions and, and just grab people that are opportunistically either having a conversation or just sitting there idly. Um, I found parents with kids to be helpful because they're kind of trapped there while their kids on the swing and they often were able to at least sign or direct me to somebody that would sign and i don't know i just i feel like it was scary at first but you kind of get over that hump after getting a couple signatures and it's really not that bad and as far as no soliciting goes i would always tell them i'm the one person who you, you can't buy uh you know these other parties are for sale uh, I would count them as solicitors, but a libertarian is not for sale. So we just accept votes. That's our only currency. So um, with the ballot access laws, they have already passed the Senate in the hearing that. So it was an eight to four passed. Yeah. And then the House hearing is Friday morning. Um, so what is the next step? What if it passes the House also? What do we do next? What should be the strategy? Because so, I don't feel like we can just let this go. We have to yeah. do something else. The biggest piece, because those are not unanimous committee endorsements, there is obvious opposition available that we can really drum up once it gets to the floor. So I'm assuming that it's going to pass out of the House committee. And when the floor vote and discussion comes up, we can make sure that we've already contacted all of our representatives and senators to beat this thing on the floor. And the fact that it's not unanimous is very problematic for them. Uh, and that tends to make bills struggle once they get to the debate in the full House and full Senate. In the Senate hearing, there were some very strong statements from a few of the members who were in opposition. Very principled stands. I felt bad for the ones who are gonna vote for the bill to have to do it after hearing that, I don't see how they could, uh, but they did. And uh, given yeah. how small the the bill actually is, it might be worthwhile to try to get on offense and say, can we amend that 10 to be a one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's... Now, yeah. the one interesting thing that is, that I think we should uh, investigate or just uh, consider... Um, as a factor is the ranked choice voting legislation. So that is, who's that designed for? It's designed for third parties. And it's sailing through the legislature right now. Uh, isn't it interesting that it's sailing through just as they are doing this amendment, which would make it impossible, virtually impossible for any party to become a major party. So we'd all be, you know, scrambling, you know, scrambling for just a few races that where we have people that petition instead of having, you know, statewide races um, everywhere. Uh, I think it's curious. And I think there's an opportunity for us there. I'm disappointed in the ranked choice voting movement for not speaking against these bills that we're up against, because what's their point? I, I don't, I don't understand it. So we yeah. I, radar. 
What I saw from the ranked choice discussion has been they see it as an opportunity to field multiple candidates potentially from the same party. So you'll have the primary winner who's the endorsed yeah. party candidate. And then you'll have tertiary candidates from that same party who are also running in the hope that if it comes down to automate automated runoff, you're going to have the stack of Democrats basically as your top three choices in the end. And so you end up ensuring that somebody from that party is going to win. You just don't know exactly who. And there's the false choice of not picking the person who was endorsed by the elites. But for the general elections with a partisan race, you got to have a party label on your on your ticket and it would be just a republican and a democrat in most of the races except for the ones where nobody bothers to challenge them yeah i I think the goal is to just channel everybody into those two major parties and you either make it work for you or you don't participate i think that's what these two bills together are saying Chip, uh, earlier I, I asked a question, and I think I must have misworded it. What does what are the implications of losing minor party status? I, I, I guess I just don't even really know what that means versus just being a party in name only. Yeah, I again, what, what I think, I and I'm not an expert on this. I, I'm because I don't have an interest in getting public financing, so in my mind just kind of shuts off when I hear the advantages of that because I'm, I'm just not interested. That's not why I'm seeking major party status. It's all about ballot access. Uh, but again, I think it's a, a major factor is the prestige. We're a, we're a party. We're a, a, we are one of the listed parties. You but mentioned earlier you can speak to the, to the financial aspects. Yeah. Jeremy, do you have anything to add to that? I'd have to pull out my election law book because that's really what it comes down to is availability of that public subsidy and the some of the ways that funds are treated for so as a candidate support. As a candidate, because you were one, what benefit did you get? In terms of I had money? I had the ability to ask the party for money if I wanted money. Uh, and so that's something that was allowable. Whereas if you were just a political organization, you fall under different rules for, for money and, and funding. Uh, I had access to party volunteers and the label that came with that. Uh, so there was, you know, organizational benefit for me. I didn't seek public subsidy for my campaign because I, well, one, there's not a lot of money for libertarians in that anyway. But I wasn't interested in in trying to meet those stringent requirements for rapidly gathering $50 contributions from hundreds of people. So this does go back to our convention last year. And there was an argument that we needed to run a governor's candidate to get that 1% so we retain our minor party status. Um, I think people knew, uh, who advocate for that stance, knew that the best chance for us to get major party status is from a so-called second tier statewide race, your secretary of state, your auditor, uh, attorney general, um, those kind of kind of races. And we did not come into our convention last year having recruited or identified any candidate to do that. We, I, I do not believe we would have achieved major party status with a governor candidate last year. I think we could have with a, with a candidate in one of these other races. As it turned out in the Secretary of State race, 
there was just a Republican and a Democrat. The other third parties didn't field the candidate. That was just laying there for us. But we didn't get on the ballot. So I hope we'll be more strategic in the future. And, you know, we can run governor candidates. That's great for branding for the party. It's where we carry our message. I mean, I was on Josh Walter's campaign four years ago. Um, but we need to achieve ballot access through a second tier race. At least that's that's my um, view. And it was actually, uh, I got the talk like five, six years ago when I said, you know, I'm thinking of running for Senate or governor or something like that. You're, you have these conven- you have these calls. Do you want to run for office? And I was a bitter ex-Republican and I wanted to, to get, you know, some messaging out there. Um, and then I was educated about, are you familiar with the ballot access requirement? No. Yeah. Well, we need to get 2000 signatures for each statewide race. And if you run multiple candidates, it's hard to fill out petition one, petition two, petition three, and petition four. And so I was advised by this party elder that our best strategy is not to actually put your A-team on the governor race in the four years ago. Josh Welter would agree with me on this. He was not the A-team as the governor. He was the B-team. Our A-team was auditor. And the, and it proved true. We got twice as many votes for auditor than we did for, for governor that year. So I, I hope we'll be more strategic three years from now and have at least the second tier and governor. Yeah, I just looked it up, James, and the the difference is just the public campaign subsidies and the political contribution refund. Uh, There's also campaign finance reporting that has to go with it, but that's the only advantage for minor party. The major party step is where you get, you know, access to school buildings and time off of work and precincts and and all that stuff. You did not avail yourself of any of the public finance. No, I I received none of the benefits associated with the minor party status in my campaign. And I suspect that a well-organized campaign that is orchestrated with party volunteers wouldn't require major or minor party status to, you know, be successful in getting a message out. But it's more of a status thing. It it would be an embarrassment to lose that status. Yes, I, I think it would be challenging particularly thinking as a party person to be able to recruit people to go to the convention or feel connected to the political organization if it doesn't even have the name of minor party. If it's just party, it might not be as cool, I guess. So what is the next steps for you two individually? Are you planning on running for something again? Would you consider that? Even knowing the challenges that you have to overcome to be able to do that? Well, it, it's interesting you you ask that because the Secretary of State office, I ran for two reasons. One, I thought logically um, voters deserved choices in that. People don't trust the election outcomes if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat. Having somebody who's, quote, neutral, who's mm-hmm. not on either of those teams, overseeing the election process, I think would give people more confidence that everything was done on the up and up. That was my basic reason for running. The other was strategic, that I I've thought that was a good vehicle to do this. My experience petitioning really opened my eyes to the reforms that we ought to do, that our current Secretary of State has chosen not to do. 
you know, things like um, the electronic petitions. Before I viewed that as how's that that would help our party. But then I knocked on doors of three women, one who I met at a park, actually, who were uh, legally blind. And in that instance, you can fill out the petition for them, but it's awkward. You have to ask them, what year were you born? People will maybe write that down. They don't want to say it. And some people not wanted to fill out a petition when they knew that they had disclosed their age. Um, and then, but when it came down to their, their signature, I, I offered each of them, would you, would you like to sign this? And all three of them said, you know, yes, because then they were able to be more uh, part of it, just like anybody, any other citizen. Their signatures didn't exactly go in the right spot or in the right direction, but I was happy that they could do that for themselves. And I tried to make notations on there that, you know, this person was legally blind. I don't know if they would have accepted that signature or not, but if it was a, if it was electronic, they would do it just like anyone else. There'd be no second class treatment for how they're done. When I handed in my petitions, I, I mentioned that to somebody at the Secretary of State's office. I said I didn't come across somebody who was deaf, but what if I did? How would I how would I deal with them? And they said, Well, American Sign Language. I think, okay, we don't know who we're gonna meet. And how many of us are gonna have the American Sign Language skill? You know, is and I that person quickly went, Oh, shouldn't have said that. But that's another example of where the voters are getting the shaft on this. You know, I used to approach this for the party, we need to do these things. We need to provide voters more choice and we need to make the petitioning process better for the voters too. And I think that was the most resonant message to talking to people and gathering signatures. You know, Chip, for your campaign in particular, I was very excited about Secretary of State potentially being a libertarian because of the, not just the election oversight, but the business regulation oversight uh, and simplifying some of that stuff that I deal with as a business owner, you know, at, uh, on a daily basis. Um, you know, it would have been really great to see some reforms and how that's managed as well. So I, I hope that we'll keep putting forward candidates for that office. Uh, for me personally, I, I'm far enough removed that I feel like the experience was good rather than bad. <laughs> but um, I don't know if I would run again. I, I could see myself doing organization or lending my experience to somebody else who's interested in, in having that experience themselves. Uh, I just I really want to advance the cause and continue uh, sharing these issues with people and letting them know what their government is intending to do to them so that they can make informed choices. And if that means I have to be a candidate, so be it. Uh, but I'd be happy to participate in any way I can. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight uh, for our inaugural episode. Um, and audience, thank you for tuning in. We will see you next week and uh, we will see you in person in Bloomington at the convention next month. Rebecca, did you have any cl closing remarks or are we good to go? I don't. Just thank you very much for taking the time and, you know, explaining some things. This was very informative and I really appreciate, you know, just being able to come here and explain things and thank give you your stories having, too. Thank you for having us on. And if since this is episode number one, I'm glad this is the first issue too, because I think it's the most important yeah. issue for the party. Super. <laughs> I'm with you. Thank you again. Take care. Yeah. Good to see you, Thanks, guys. Bye.